and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Indeed, Lord, this morning we turn to you once again and we ask, Lord, that you would do your work through your word as we um, dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Would you, Lord, reveal um, what this passage is seeing both to those first Corinthian Christians and also to us 2,000 years later. Lord, would you break into our own situations and speak your wisdom into our lives, we ask, for your glory's sake and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we've been going through, we're all the way up to chapter 9 now in 1 Corinthians. We've been looking at um, who, what, where, when, why of, of the book of this letter, 1 Corinthians, always good questions to ask, like you're a detective. Who is it written to? What is the content of what's being written? Where were these people living? When were they living? And why is the book being written, essentially? Um, So all of that we've talked about extensively, but essentially one of the whys um, that we're going to always come back to is that we'll see that there are a lot of things that the Corinthians are doing that are um, it, it seemed like misbehavior. And remember, Paul's writing not to correct their misbehavior for the sake of correcting them, for the sake of appearances, or for the sake of just doing it right. He's really correcting them because those, the misbehavior or the um, amoral be, or immoral behavior that they're participating in or some of, the, um, some of the chaos that's ensuing in their church, essentially it demonstrates that they haven't really understood the gospel. And so he writes and he begins those first several chapters. Remember chapters 1 through 4, he is really giving them a strong dose of the gospel. He's re-preaching the gospel to them, reminding them of the cross of Jesus Christ and how um, God in his mercy has humbled himself, come to us um, in the form, the likeness of human beings in order to be able to take our sin upon him and then to... Um, to to end sin once and for all, to forgive us through the blood of Jesus' cross. And so because God himself has humbled himself, then we too also operate on that principle. And they'd been so spiritual in their sense of having received the Holy Spirit of God, having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, that then they started to get arrogant and puffed up, as he says. I love how he says that, uses that phrase to describe those leaders within the Corinthian church that are um, causing divisions and that are basically advocating for certain positions that are really not scriptural. And so he's going to correct a lot of these different things. And he already has. We've already seen him correct um, licentiousness in chapters 5 and 6, that kind of immoral behavior, and also asceticism in chapter 7, which is the complete flip side. On one side, um, there had been some who had been saying anything goes, and then on the other side, there had been some who had been saying matter is yucky stuff, the flesh, the body, is bad and therefore we must punish the body and do whatever it takes to not allow the body to follow the natural urges that it has. And Essentially, they were even advocating for celibacy within marriage and Paul has to say, no, 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 no. Neither way is the way forward. God, and it's based on the sense, you know, again, the Hebrew sense, in the beginning, God created and we hear all, as we hear all throughout Genesis, and the, the conclusion to every one of those um, items that the Lord creates in Genesis 1 and 2 is, and it was good. Birds and fish and sun and stars and moon, and it was good. And so Paul is reasserting this idea that the stuff of the universe is good but fallen. And so we can't, if it, their thought was this Gnostic thought that stuff is bad. And if stuff is bad, then either they would say, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, or you must do, um, you must completely deny your body anything. And even fasting, even water, even those kind of things. And so he's saying, no, 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 neither. Okay? So that's what we looked at in chapters 5 and 6 and 7. In chapter 8, and we're going to see in these next several chapters, chapters 8 through 10, he's tackling another issue. Anybody remember what the issue was in chapters 8 through 10? 
we're going to look at it again today, believe it or not, of course, being in none. Food. Yeah. Stuff that has to do with the body again, right? But here, the idea was food and what kind of food were they talking about? This is so I won't have more coffee, right? <laughs> I'll get you in later. (laughs) Um, Food that was sacrificed to idols, to these pagan gods. You said last week that one time they got meat was when they went to the temple and took their. For some of them. If they were wealthy and they had their own flocks, then. But this was a way of participating in great protein, right? So there was that physical component, this nutritional component, but also there's a social component. Because Corinth was made up of so many guild workers, you know, tradesmen, it was really not, it was a colony that was built where a lot of people made their fortunes. And these tradesmen, as anybody who has a a business knows, so much of your business is also relies upon social graces. I think about that with Birmingham. It's really true, you know, and I think about it even with our church that some people's business really relies on their good reputation in society, and that's really important. And so in this culture, part of their good reputation in this pagan society meant being seen socially at these kinds of pagan feasts. Um, It'd be like not going to the club. You know, it'd be like not, but, but, still trying to do business with everyone else who goes to the club. I mean, it was, it was a real problem. I don't know. Forgive me if I've misunderstood some of the aspects. That's not all that goes on, I know, in being a part of a club. But it, it really does help with business, right? So they, this is a social, financial, physical consideration. And so, um, so there are so many factors going on here. And what is Paul's bottom line from last week? Do you remember what he says about food offered to idols? Right. It's and not offering, it was eating, right? Right. It's well, it's... Whether you ate food that was, had been offered. Right. It's not... We're not... Yeah, that's right, Mary. We're not dealing with a question of even offering it. They shouldn't have been offering it as Christians anyway. But then there are two other questions. Do we eat it in the temple publicly? And or do we eat it and buy it in the marketplace and take it home to our home? and eat it at home. What can we do? And do you remember he says, whatever you do, don't eat it in the temple. Because, why? It will lead others astray. It will lead those who are weak in their conscience, who are still so close to having worshipped those gods that they're in danger of going back to that worship if they partake in the food there in the temple. But he says in the marketplace you can bring it home And unless there's someone with a weak conscience who you've invited over for dinner, you could serve it without hurting your brother in Christ. Does that make sense? So can you take it home from the temple? Can you? That's not an option that he presents. That would make sense, right? Little doggy bag from the temple. I love that cake. Well, well, it's unclear. Did you hear what Gordon said? Because there's some social aspects to even being present in the temple. So we don't see anywhere in scripture where he says don't even walk into a temple. It's like people that... that Wait, are we, are we that join a certain church because yeah. it gives them status, and all the mm-hmm. cool people are supposed to be totally. doing Actually, a lot of people. Um, right here. Right here. That's right. No, this is all about the pagan temple. But it's not in your heart. Not Jewish temple. This is all the goddesses of, you know, temple of Aphrodite. And there wasn't one to Arnabas there in Corinth, but that or that we know that that I know that kind of thing. You know, it all of these pagan Greek gods, and then Eastern cults um, that had come in from Persia and even points further east. Um, because remember, Corinth was this 
the harbor and port, and so you'd get all sorts of religious ideas from all around, and all sorts of different gods and goddesses and and religious practices um, associated with lesser gods and goddesses. You know, I just thought about this as much as they were all surrounded by water. Yeah. They had a lot of fish to eat. Yeah. I never read about, I've never seen anything that I remember about fish being sacrificed. Mm-mm. I mean, like in the Old Testament, I mean, I don't know how they grew enough cattle to sacrifice all the cattle that they were slaughtering. I know. It seems like that must have been the only cattle. You, cattle I mean, only I seemed to have gotten. I don't know how they did. I mean, it, I think that's an exact. I think it's exaggerated, really. It's hard it to imagine. Goats and lambs. I mean, it's not really. Mm-hmm. Cow, I mean, it's not as much cows. Well, they had a lot of oxen. <laughs> they did have a. They did have some oxen, especially in the Old Testament. You yeah. see a lot of that. But it might have been that there were other things that were but sacrificed there in corn. They didn't use fish to sacrifice. I know, they didn't. But, or maybe it was like fish is poor people's food, you know, because anybody can catch it. If you think about that, I mean, don't we think about that with beans and rice? Easily accessible, great protein, good for your health, but I don't know. Scott's like, we're eating beans and rice all the time because we're on a budget now, and I'm like, Mm-mm. <laughs> Throw him a hand bun. Yeah, well, he, he would like that. <laughs> so they've found that this freedom, the bottom line as we see in verses 12 and 13, this freedom of the strong could cause the weak to stumble. And he's saying that love and care and concern for our Christian brother and sister should determine our behavior, not what we know. Well, I know that this means nothing because this idol is no God, so I can go eat. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You're going to hurt someone else um, for whom Christ died. Don't do that. Um, So he's going to go on. And chapter 9 is all one big big example. So it's going to feel like a non sequitur, but it's all one big example based on Paul's own experience as an apostle. He's going to show that his own willingness to sacrificially give up his rights for the benefit of the Corinthians should be an example for them, the strong especially, to follow. Um, so let's begin to, I'll begin at chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read a couple verses, stop for a minute, and then just keep, keep going. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Even just that language of being a seal. Think of a letter, scroll, scroll rolled up with a seal on it, um, saying this is who's sending the letter with the imprint of a ring. Or think of the seal on, um, on a bottle. You know it hasn't been tampered with. It's authentic. Uh, now they put too many seals on the bottle. You know, there's a seal inside, a seal outside, and I just think, I know nobody poisoned my food. It's okay. But Paul's saying the fact that those Corinthians believed in the gospel that he preached demonstrates that he's truly an apostle. So he's defending his his, um, identity as an apostle, his calling as an apostle, in order to talk then about his rights as an apostle. In verse 3, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of shearing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 
lots of verses, but it's pretty clear what he's arguing for, isn't it? He's saying, yes, I've, he has already said, yes, I'm truly an apostle. And here he's defending the right of those who are apostles or those who are um, teachers and preachers and pastors to earn a living by preaching the gospel. Um, he uses the word, the Greek word, um, here again and again, as you see in those first few verses, right, this word for right. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do you hear that? Um, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? He, that's the same word in the Greek, exousia, which means authority also, um, as what was used in chapter 8, if you just flip back, chapter 8, verse 8. Oh, it's actually chapter 8, verse 9. Um, excuse me about that. But take care. Okay, he says in chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This power, this authority, this right of theirs um, to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, since an idol is not a god, was going to cause someone else to stumble. And he's talking here, he's using an analogy of rights. And he's saying, okay, you say you have this right, so you're going to go do it. You have the freedom and the right to go do this, even though it's going to hurt other people. Well, let me talk to you about another right. I have the right to get you to pay me <laughs> for being here. But have I done that? No. And why? And he's going to talk about why in a minute. But so he's talking about the right. He's defending the right first. Then he's going to go on to say why he's foregone the right. And, um, and then go from there to say, this is why you all sh also should forego your rights in the Lord on behalf of others. Thoughts about that? Does that make sense? Um, so he talks about a couple of these rights. Um, how interesting, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? How interesting we hear that some of the other apostles had their wives with them when they would travel around to the churches, along with Peter, who's also called um, Cephas or Kephas. Um, and then he, in that he goes from there to talk about working for a living. He's saying, do we have the right um, to work for a living? He talks about, again, the right to earn um, through, through preaching the gospel, to receive a living through preaching the gospel. And he uses a couple of really commonplace examples in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And he goes, and then he's going to use the law to justify the same, uh, the same um, principle that he's talked about in verse 7. In verse 8, he's saying, do I say these things on human authority? No. Does not the law say the same thing? Yes, it does. For it is written in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, he shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Do you see what... Remember, a muzzle, like on a dog, would cover the ox's mouth so that while he's treading the grain, from, so that they can then, once it's treaded, then it'd be, it's like the same as threshing the grain, I believe, so that the two separate and you actually have the grain that can be ground and made into flour. Well, you don't want to put a muzzle on the ox so he can't eat while he's also working, right? If he decides... Well, I want to eat some of that green. He should be allowed to. Isn't it neat that the law that the law of Moses advocates for that? <laughs> Get the, let that hungry ox eat some food while he's working. When we think about the other little graces like that that the law of Moses talks about, you know, leaving your field when you when you harvest your field, leaving the edges of your field unharvested. Don't be as scrupulous as I am. I'm so thorough. I'll try to get all of everything. If I were back, you know, a farmer back then, I'd try to get everything in the whole field because I'm so frugal. I don't want to leave anything behind. And he's saying, no, leave it behind because then people who are in need can come along and pick some of the grain for themselves to eat. Just this picture of grace in, in, um, in the midst of going about our regular lives and, and logical grace. So he's talking about this um, not muzzling an ox when it's treading out the grain. And, um, and he's going on, he's saying, he's saying even, how interesting, what an interesting way to interpret scripture. Deuteronomy really is talking about the ox. And Paul's saying, yes, but the Lord through Deuteronomy is also talking about pastors. 
How interesting that Paul's interpreting it. He's speaking entirely for our sake. The plow, it was written entirely for our sake, for this contemporary application to his day, so many centuries later, saying the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And now he's going to take this very physical analogy and example, and he's going to um, intermingle it with the spiritual reality of preaching the gospel in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Any thoughts or questions about that? Well, yeah, Gordon. Time, I know that they went from place to place in their food and housing was probably taken care of by mm-hmm. those that they were preaching to. Mm-hmm. But I do know that Paul was a tent maker. Mm-hmm. And they all had, did they all have various and sundry ways to, to make money rather than As a trade. We hear that Priscilla and Aquila also are tent makers. Actually, they have the exact same trade as Paul. Um, but we don't hear that all of them have a trade that they're operating on. If you think about the, the disciples, they were fishermen, right? So maybe they could still fish in Corinth, but I bet you had to get a boat. Um, you know, How are they going to keep plying their trade? Well, you also have, in juxtaposition to Paul's practice, you have the words of Jesus, which I'm going to read for us right now, from chapter, from Mark chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Remember when he sends out the disciples two by two? He sends out the twelve, and he says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And then again in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, the laborer deserves his wages. There's this idea that they wouldn't bring along provision for themselves as they're going out among the villages in Galilee because they're going to allow people to take care of them there. They're going to rely upon the strong ancient <laughs> hospitality, the Jewish hospitality, when they go from place to place. And they're going to stay in one place even if the food at that house is way better. They're going to stay at the house <laughs> where they first started, right? And they're going to stay there for as long as people want to hear and receive from them. So how interesting. So we think that some of the apostles, as they went around, were intentionally following this principle. Um, but we see Paul doing it differently. And we're going to see why in just a minute. He wants, it's almost like he wants bonus points. He wants an extra reward for being a tent maker. And we'll see why in just a minute. But that's a great question. Um, okay. So sometimes, just to point out, yes, there were itinerant philosophers and preachers. Um, sometimes even, sometimes there were, there were Christian ones, but sometimes there were pagan ones too. And you would find them making, sometimes making a lot of money from this itinerant philosophy. And Paul, again, wants to distance himself from that. Paul does receive support at some times from some people. We hear some hints of that. And he even also takes up offerings for other people when they're in need. But he usually does not take any support from those he was directly preaching to at the time. And so one modern contemporary example of this would be the difference between a missionary and a parish pastor. You know, just think we have, par- we have pastors on staff, ministers on staff, who receive, you know, a salary through preaching the gospel and doing the work of ministry in, at Cathedral Church of the Advent, right? Thank, thank goodness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, the people of the Advent. We also, as a church, though, we support many pastors and ministers and missionaries who are doing the same kind of work, but in a totally different context, in Indonesia, in the Middle East, in Africa. And they're doing that work there. And the reason we're paying to support them to go is so that when they're preaching the gospel there to people who have never heard it before, they're not um, also requiring those people to pay their salaries and pay for them to be there. And it's totally appropriate when, when there is an established church there for the local pastors then to be supported by the congregation. But this is before there are congregations that even exist. And so how neat that we can offer the gospel to those in all of these different places around the world free of charge 
they don't have to pay the minister to be able to hear the gospel. Well, that gets to... Um, yeah, there are a lot in the South, aren't there? Yeah, I remember having a couple even in the Northeast, and I remember being in one church, and we, you know, it was not a Sunday morning service, but we took up an offering to support the person. But I didn't feel right about it. Is that bad? But I didn't feel right about it because. Did you not heard the minister? I heard the minister. Maybe that's why I didn't feel right about it. <laughs> but but I but it was because I felt like I felt yeah I just didn't that particular situation it didn't seem like it was going towards a good cause and it felt like it was manipulative. I don't know. I just had I just had a like. Mm. Mm-mm. So, but you know, it's hard. It's hard you know, to tell. In, the, in that uh, nomadic society, when you yeah. had the, the the requirement for hospitality was just essential to life. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they were they went on long right. trips, and they and food was so fragile that right. you could get Perishable. in the middle of an area that didn't have anything. So it was yeah. up to people. To, but if you, but they were probably passing through. So the hospitality was for people who were passing through, not for people who came to stay. Right. And Paul would stay for years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, did mm-hmm. he stay for two or He three did, it, yeah, in some places. And that'd be a hard thing to say, well, I'm moving in. <laughs> yeah, thank you for all your support. And that would be a, that would be a drain on a family, in one family or on the whole community. Yeah, exactly. But I'll also say this, and I think this is, I've read this in some commentators, and I think that this is also operating in Paul's mindset. He doesn't talk about it as explicitly um, in this particular example, but he's going to talk about it in other, I believe in 2 Corinthians he gets into it a little bit. He doesn't want them to support him on an ongoing basis also because within this Greek um, culture and Roman culture, there was this system called patronage where um, you would try to get a leg up in society by having a patron who would protect you, who would provide for you, and you'd provide services for them. It would be, you know, I scratch your back and you scratch my back, and by this relation, by the means of this relationship, you help me climb this ladder. Um, and socially and, and in terms of business and all sorts of other things. And so in this culture where this is the operating social mindset, Paul does not want to engage in a relationship that would put him in a point of need where then, um, say, leaders within the congregation are supporting his, his life, supporting his ability to be there, and then they come to him and say, um, well, we're supporting you, and we want you to do this, and it's against the gospel. And, and normally in that society, they would have the right to expect and even demand that. And he's saying, no, no, no. I'm not, he's not going to put himself in a position where they can exact certain things from him. He's not going to give them a blank check <laughs> over him in terms of favors. Does that make sense? That's, you, I, I've, yeah, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. He doesn't want to get into that. One, yeah, one other reason before we... Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that maybe one of the reasons why Paul plied his trade mm-hmm. is because if he were going to be in a place for a long extended period of time, he might want to uh, add to the economy of the community or the yeah. home where he was staying. You know, sure. and yeah. help them out. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he might help out the communities. You know, the 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 less uh, well successful communities. Sure. By giving them money. Yeah. And I mean, I think he didn't he send. I mean, in some of his letters, didn't he say something about? contributions to churches, certain churches. In need. Yeah, when there's a famine in Jerusalem and Judea, he has churches elsewhere send an offering to go and help those Christians who are hungry there. Um, But he also, one other thing too, and you got this from the um, 2 Thessalonians passage last night at the 5 o'clock service, right? There is this idea, and if you recall from last spring, do you remember in 2 Thessalonians, there appears to be a group of people who are not um, who are not who are able to work but are not working and are depending on the charity of the Christian 
community. You know, there was this, we get a picture in Acts that there were a lot of possessions even that were held in common, a lot of big gifts that were given to be able to support those in real poverty in their midst. But um, it seems as though in um, Thessalonica, Paul has come across some people that are taking advantage of that generosity. They're able to work, but they aren't. And so Paul, by working, he's also setting an example for his church's hard work of manual labor um, and as a way of countering this tendency that some might not work. Um, Okay, so let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is a little, he's boasting, there's two different realities here that he's talking about. It, this boasting, remember, is not sinful pride. He's just joyful in the Lord, and he's, going, he's joyful about going above and beyond. His stewardship versus his reward, this idea of the stewardship, remember, we talk about stewardship a lot. We have this season of the year uh, always. But this idea is something that's lost on us today because we don't have it within our society. But if you think about a great estate, or we do a little bit, think about a great estate, um, a medieval estate like a castle or some of these lands that were owned in the ancient world. But think medieval is a little closer to our situation. So think of a medieval castle. The lord of the castle didn't necessarily manage the day-to-day affairs of the whole estate. You know, there might be all sorts of different um, people holding the land and actually tilling the land and plowing the land and harvesting the land, but the lord of the castle wasn't the one who was going to retain, who was going to manage all of this. He would assign a manager or a steward and hire the steward, and the steward would live on the property, be so invested in the property personally, and be the one to manage all of these affairs on behalf of the owner of the property. And so, um, so he would be held accountable by the lord of the manor he, for um, what came in, what didn't come in, what was, being, uh, what was profitable, what was not profitable. Um, there was this sense of an accounting and a sense of lordship and um, authority over the whole land, even if he wasn't the actual owner of the land. We hear this example again and again in scripture, and the reason why we call stewardship and our own tithing um, every year, this whole campaign that we do as a church, the reason we call it stewardship is because it's this idea that all of what we have and possess in this life, all of our material possessions are actually not ours. They belong to the Lord 100%, and we are actually just managers of what he's given us to manage. And some he's given more to manage, and some he's given less to manage, but we're each managers or stewards of what we've been given. One of my other favorite examples of this is from um, is Super Nerdy and from The Lord of the Rings, if you know those stories. <laughs> and there's, <laughs> there's a steward in the southern kingdom. Remember, the two kingdoms are divided. Sounds like Israel. Two kingdoms are divided, and they've lost um, their king, essentially. The, the royal lineage is, has gone underground and undercover in the last dark days in which The Lord of the Rings is set. And so there's, um, and the king, the rightful king will be king of both kingdoms but they don't know who that king is. And the southern kingdom has remained more intact and is actually um, in the hands of a steward who's meant to manage the whole southern kingdom until the heir should return. But remember Lord Denethor, the steward of the southern kingdom, has come to see it as his own. He's forgotten that he's actually a steward for someone else and he thinks he has... um, full authority to do whatever he wants to do with the land itself. It's tragic and sad and interesting and nerdy and that's why I like it. But, uh, but so that also is a great example of this stewardship and how stewardship can go awry. Well, Paul's stewardship and stewardship of apostles is to preach the gospel. He is under constraint 
to, from the Lord to preach the gospel. And I love this verse. You know that this verse is the verse that is on a plaque in our pulpit at the Advent. Um, we, uh, and this is, I think it came, it came about during Frank Limehouse's yeah. deanship. He put it there. Um, and when he, when he left, um, you know, every time when he was here, every time I'd get up to preach, and anybody would get up to preach. He'd be like, give them the gospel, give them the gospel. Like, don't forget, that's what you're supposed to do. And it was like, I know, I know, I know, here we go. But still a good reminder, always in the plaque is a good reminder. And, you know, when he left, we put um, the canons that were here, the four of us, put our hands all on that plaque and took a photo of it and gave it to him and, basic, and framed it. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> Your legacy remains. We, we know our stewardship, the stewardship that's laid upon us. Woe to us if we do not preach the gospel in verse 16. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So he has this constraint, this stewardship, that he'll do either way. He's entrusted with the stewardship. But Paul wants to go above and beyond. And he wants to, it's like bonus points. I was always the kid on the test. I was like, give me the bonus. I want bonus points. I want to I work harder. I want to strive harder. Um, he is wanting these bonus points. And what are the bonus points that he's talking about? Well, this reward is so beautiful. His reward that he's seeking is that he would be able to preach the free gift of God's grace freely in such a way that the means of the preaching freely, without cost to those who hear it, would point to the content of the free gift of God's love in Jesus Christ. How beautiful that he wants to marry form and content. So that is his reward if he presents the gospel free of charge, um, since the gospel is truly about God's free gift to us. So going on in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you hear what's that, Mary? Consummate politician. <laughs> I know, I know you don't. I know you don't like this. Yeah, I know, I know. This is where you wish he would just say it straight and just be done with it, and he doesn't. And part of it is because, um, again, especially with the commands and things he issues, he knows the human will too well. He knows that the heart is deceitful and that the heart doesn't want to obey, even especially not a direct command, even if given from someone who truly is an authority over them. So he's aware of that. Um, he knows what he... And so if it feels like he's dancing around something, it's because he's not only trying to get people to do what he tells them to, but he's trying to get them to want to do what he tells them to, which is a lot harder. If you have children, you know what this is like, right? You... Tell them what to do, but then you also realize just telling them what you want them to do doesn't mean they're going to do it. In fact, it very often means they're going to do the opposite. And so you have to convince them. You have to get them. Um, in some ways, you want to make it easier for them to obey you because then they'll have the benefits of obedience um, as well as um, just the relationship also. So he is going about it, and he's talking about this principle of translation. So in, um, as a missionary, it's this idea of being all things to all people. So he, he's talking about this attitude because he wants these Corinthians also to adopt this attitude. And you see this all throughout the world with, we were even just talking about Bible translation on Sunday with having these missionaries visiting us um, who are, translating the Bible for a people group that has never had a Bible in their language. And there's this idea of getting to know the people there and know their context so that then you can translate the good news into that context. And it might be that you haven't been in a lot of different settings where you have to translate what you're saying. Um, but what was really amazing was hearing these Bible translators say, you know, now that we're on furlough in the Midwest, we do actually find ourselves also having to translate for our neighbors who don't 
who don't understand um, what we're saying if we say I'm a Christian. They don't know what that means because they, their only experience of it is the negative picture of Christians that they see on TV. So we have to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or I'm a this, or I'm a that, instead of this other thing, because they'll totally misunderstand the content. We see this, we have one ministry where they, um, one of our ministries that we support does a lot of um, preaching the gospel in Muslim areas of the world, and one of the things I remember this particular minister saying was, in coming across these Muslims who begin to believe in Jesus, they'll say to him, yes, but... I believe in Jesus, but does this mean that I have to become a Christian and not not uh, and eat pork and drink alcohol mm-hmm. and watch TV? And he's like, no, no, of course not. So these images associated with the word often um, have been lost in translation. And so that's where foregoing using the word and saying, well, this person is a follower of Jesus can be really helpful, that translation into context. Any um, thoughts about that or other examples of that that you want to share? Jesus would have said, I have become all things to all people. Well, didn't he become... So that I can say. So. Yeah. I don't think Jesus had that position. I think he absolutely did. I thought he was who he was. He is who and he, he is. Who and he was and mm-hmm. he did not compromise. This is not about compromise, Mary. This is about reaching someone at their level. So the very principle of the incarnation. This is the principle of the it, incarnation. It, 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 if you, if you, I, I think he's being very honest here, mm-hmm. extremely honest, mm-hmm. to say to Jews I'm a Jew and to pagans I'm not a Jew. And mm-hmm. it, but I think for the different groups it undermines his position. I, I would totally disagree because I think it helps them to be able to relate to him because he's saying these things are peripheral things. Circumcision is nothing. Remember, he said that earlier. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Doesn't matter. All that matters is Jesus Christ. And so he is um, he's assimilating in some ways in non-essentials. He's finding unity with those that he's trying to preach the gospel to in non-essentials so that then he can preach to them the essentials of the gospel and they'll be able to hear it. Um, I think about this in terms, okay, so this is the principle of the incarnation. That's why I would say that this is exactly what Jesus does. Does he make us come to him before he receives us and offers us grace? No, he comes to us in frail human flesh. God is born as a baby in Bethlehem. God comes down to us in Jesus Christ, totally into our context, taking on all of the different um, peripheral things about our context, the hunger, the pain, the, um, all of the different aspects of being human, that um, all just so that the gospel could be preached to us and so that our salvation could be won. Um, so that's where I think that Paul is operating based on, based on Jesus' example in, that, in the just incarnation. Being just being human. Yeah. It's like, it's like a wall. You've got a wall and you have to break that wall down in order to reach out to those people on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. The dialogue has to be there or you will just be shut down. Totally. Nobody will listen. So you have to, you know, kind of yeah. do what you I have to, to do. do. Yeah. Try to find common ground with everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're so that I might bring them to cross. Right. So that's that common Right. And again, he is not, let me reiterate what I think you're getting to, Mary, is he giving up the most important things, to be able to be in relationship with people and to be able to preach. No, he's not sacrificing the content of the gospel. In fact, he's stronger <laughs> on the content of the gospel and his flexibility with other things and the grace he offers in these non-essentials is part of what allows people to hear the essentials of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, if that makes sense. Um, so he is advocating. He's showing that this is how... He, um, he approaches things and he is advocating um, this approach for the Corinthians because he wants those in their midst with this superior knowledge about idols and about um, meat sacrificed to idols. He wants them to adopt this same attitude, this principle of translation and constraint towards those who are weak regarding idols. He's already told the knowledgeable that they're right. You're right, he said in chapter 8. Remember, there is no God but one God. So these idols are so-called gods. They aren't even gods. 
So essentially, ultimately, you're not offering worship to them when you go to them, unless you think you are, and then you are. (laughs) And he's going to go on in chapter 10 to say these so-called gods that are not gods, they're actually demons. So really, no, really don't do it. But he starts out by saying, no, you knowledgeable ones, you really are, you really do have some knowledge that's true here. But as the basis for your action, this knowledge should not be the basis for your action. Rather, love and care and concern for your brother should be the basis for your action. Um, So he said, in a way, you're right, but you you need to stop being right so that others can be preserved in their faith and so that the weak can be protected. Um, Okay, any more thoughts on that before we finish up verses 24 through 27? Okay. Here's a great image in another one of these um, memory verses, right? (laughs) Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul here is talking again about being disqualified from receiving his bonus points, his reward of offering the gospel free of charge. And he's talking about the sacrifice that it requires, that, that running towards this reward, reward excuse me, requires. And the sacrifice is essentially his own physical labor. He's going to be a tent maker so that he can offer the gospel free of charge. And that requires some effort on his part. But that effort is not lost. It's worth it. It's like training for a marathon. And how amazing that he uses this athletic analogy. It's really good because I hate running. I hate it. And I hate it so much that when I try to convince myself that I need to start doing it again, I've got terrible eyesight so I can't run on the road or on the sidewalk because I'll trip on a route or an uneven sidewalk and it'll be the end. I'll be fat flat on my face. But I do run, when I run, I run on a treadmill and all the better because I can see whenever I start to think that I need to run again and I try to run, my heart is so out of shape that if I'm not careful, I, I get more ambitious than I'm able. I just start running and running and running and then my heart rate gets way high, like 180, like not good. And so I have to pace myself. Um, I have to start where I'll run for three minutes and then walk for seven, and then run for three minutes and walk for seven, all so that my heart rate doesn't get too high at the beginning. But if I go once a week and then I start to go twice a week, what I begin to see over time is that I can run for longer without my heart rate getting up into the danger zone more and more bit by bit and it's not fun and I still really don't like it I like how I feel afterwards but I really don't like doing it but this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about bit by bit training themselves causing themselves to deny themselves this pleasure physically of eating the meat in the temple this pleasure socially and the benefits socially of eating the meat in the temple and going there and he's saying, no, you really must deny yourself this pleasure. And it's going to be worth it. There's a prize at the end. And the prize it, for them, for the Corinthians, is their brother or sister who is quote-unquote weak, who, has, um, who needs the, to know, um, who's maybe not sure that these idols are not real gods. And so they need to know how to behave. And so showing them, modeling this um, belief only in the Lord and this um, self-denial for the sake of that conviction is something that will actually help those weaker brothers. Um, the gaming image, the athletic image, it's especially appropriate because Corinth held the Isthmian Games. Remember, it's an isthmus geographically, and it was the second um, most, the second biggest games in the ancient world after the Olympics. And so receiving the crown, they had this laurel wreath crown that would not last because it was made of laurel laurel leaves. Um, And he is talking about an imperishable crown that we receive for this, um, the discipline of this life and the um, the self-denial that sometimes occurs. And he's talking about the self-denial. The danger, too, is that we see this self-denial, this punishing of the body as something that he is advocating. Paul here is not 
advocating punishing one's body as a legitimate spiritual discipline, the way you see it in some Christian tradi- traditions. No, but he's using it to describe this punishing is actually the training of bit by bit um, pushing yourself a little bit more so that, um, so that you can have some kind of ultimate benefit. Okay, any thoughts or questions about this? We talked about some examples. I'm going to close and just, I'm going to pray in just a minute, but some examples of what this might be like for us today. And I just want to encourage you to keep thinking, what, what could this be? I talked about yoga, going to yoga, and you know, how that can be misunderstood by someone, especially if you're going to be chanting in Hindi. That's what was the deal breaker for me. Or, um, or um, modesty, wearing things when I was at my nice, good Christian college that I felt free to wear, but then I realized that I could see on the faces of the boys that I would pass on the sidewalk that maybe it wasn't a good thing to wear just because they, their eyes would linger. And I thought, well, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> and so even though I was free to wear it and I knew I wasn't sinning in my heart, I wasn't trying to um, provoke them, I still began to learn maybe I shouldn't wear that. Maybe I should curb my own freedom for the sake of another brother or sister in Christ. Um, any other examples you can think of of curbing our own freedom in order that others um, might be encouraged and built up and not fall into sin? Something to think about. Let's pray. I was thinking oh, yeah, Mary. Road rage, you know, just yelling at people. <laughs> and I think I'm not presenting a good example. <laughs> if I get mad, if I don't think about that person and how old they are, they were not, you know, I, I try consciously to act better in a car. <laughs> I, I need to be convicted of that, Mary. That's the reason I don't have an Advent shield on my car. Right. It's because I don't, I I don't want to be a bad person. And then I thought, oh my gosh, what if I slip? And then you think, I'm a Christian. I will say, so Mary, the worst is when I'm driving and wearing my collar and I get frustrated and I'm like... Yeah, exactly. Not by the way we drive. But we're all human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where we can use it to tell on ourselves and tell on, um, tell others of God's great love and grace towards us, even in the midst of our failures and frustrations and anger and sin. That's what Zach did last night. He did. It was good. It was really good. Well, let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, the great gift of your love for us, that free gift offered in the midst of our need. And we thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul offering that free gift freely and the way he um, uh, let go of his own rights and his own freedom so that others might um, be able to hear the gospel even more. And so we ask, Lord, that you would show us Um, those rights that we have or the perceived rights or the freedoms that we have that we use and misuse in ways that actually are detrimental to others. Lord, show us. Give us eyes to see how we might love others better through, um, through the way we use our freedom. And we thank you for that freedom, Lord. We receive it again, again and again and again. Um, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless us this week, that we would have a joyful celebration and gratitude, um, really in thanksgiving to you for all of what you've done for us, um, not only in Jesus, but in, in this life also. And so we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. See you next Monday. There's also um, the Christ in the Christmas Crunch is going to be...